This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, produced by, and performed by me, Brad Lawrence, uh, still doing it from a tiny little side room of a tiny little Brooklyn apartment uh, during a pandemic with children playing outside and sirens going off in the distance. But still, I thank you for coming back every week to hear a new episode of Maxine's Ongoing Adventures. And so, with no further ado, here we go to the next episode of Maxine, The Planet's Unknown. Episode 12, chapters 23 and 24. Chapter 23 It is probably natural enough for human beings to think of themselves as being on a planet, as opposed to what is more true, that they are in a planet. People like hard barriers, clearly drawn borders, and they think of their skin as where they begin, and the outside world ends, and, in a lot of situations, that might be accurate enough. For instance, if they were frozen in a vacuum, say, naked and floating in space, as is the ever-present threat for any species that manages to get itself off of its own rocks of origin, and expand its notion of the lived-in world to encompass spaceships and the distances between planets. If that were the situation, there would be a pretty clear border between the dead body and the void that had murdered it. That person has a surface, and a thing or absence of things beyond that surface. That is their self. Their dead self. What they are missing is that It is only through interaction and exchange, only by blurring the borders of the self and the clean definitions of this and that, body and surroundings, person and habitat, that life can exist. When those borders are complete and inviolate, then you are inert. You are a corpse, afloat in space, and you are clearly separate. You can have total integrity, or you can have life. You cannot have both. But the people of the Contiki were people with people-level perspective. They saw the world as people do. They were on a ship, and they were on a planet. But from the moment of their arrival, they were in Oxalis and Oxalis was in them. For Oxalis would never have conceived the gases around its core, the atmosphere, and all of the tiny microscopic things that were suspended in that atmosphere as being separate from itself. Because it had a purpose. It functioned as part of the cycling of energy and resources and need and priority that created the life that sustained Oxalis. That was one of the many things that made Oxalis different from the tiny creatures that were just the latest to invade it. The people in Oxalis thought of themselves as essentially apart from most of the things that made them possible. Most of them, basically, if you broke it down to the narrowest notion of selfhood, 
tended to think of themselves as their eyes and the small part of their brain that made sense of whatever their eyes saw. The hair on their skin was taking in as much vital information as the eyes in their head, and often with much more accuracy and much less bias, but they did not think of themselves as those hairs. They did not think of themselves as the oxygen, the air currents, or the rays of the sun that were carrying that vital information to those hairs. They did not think of themselves as existing in a continuum of nutrient and stimulus and energy. There was a world. They looked at that world, made judgments about that world, and those judgments and the thin sack of fluids and tissues that those judgments were suspended in, that was them. And the world was the world. This was some junk data. Barely a percentage of the relevant information. And the fact that they could catapult themselves across space from bubble of water to bubble of water and not immediately implode, explode, wither, or simply liquefy was a sign of the essential benign nature of their universe. A universe that they would always think of as utterly hostile. For if they actually knew all the ways that their unquestioned and unchallenged ignorance could get them killed, they would have been shocked that any kind of life existed anywhere, especially life in the abundance they had already encountered, and much less life as fragile as they were, or as stupid. Existence was unfailingly kindest to idiots and little children, and idiots and little children were the first to say that existence was forever unfair. But this is probably being unnecessarily ungenerous to the passengers of the Contiki, who were, for suffering all the limitations of their kind, good people. They were just people. It is natural that they should think of themselves as separate from the air that they breathe and the particles it contained. To be entirely fair, the entity that had generated those particles with all of their specialized purposes, it still thought of the emigres as very much separate from itself as well. If you could say it was really thinking of them at all. But that air and the tiny vehicles it contained were not foreign or distinct from the being that the emigres had named Oxalis without knowing it was any kind of being at all. They were not distinct either by its reckoning or by its design. They had objectives. Some to influence and induce, some to harvest and inform. And they were tiny enough, agile enough, elastic enough to find their way into the brains of the emigres through the alveoli and the capillaries and the bloodstream to find and to extract and to spy. Their round-trip journey was not one of understanding. Theirs was to collect and retrieve. They each carried a speck of paint that would be assembled and understood and judged and potentially acted upon without understanding or judging or acting ever raising to the level of conscious choice, not the way the people of the Contiki would understand choosing. 
unless something truly extraordinarily arose that would cause an awareness so global and so glacial to go through the once-in-a-millennium bother of coalescing into a single moment. It was hard to say which was worse. To fight against an automation that, once set in motion, would neither hear nor recognize any argument until it had completed its predetermined mission? Or to draw the attention of a consciousness so vast and so encompassing that you might as well be biting the toenails of a god? The people of the Contiki were not trying to find out. At that point, what most of them were trying to do was to climb so deep into themselves they would slip out of existence entirely. In that experience, Edward Cole, known far and wide as Deputy Cole, in spite of the fact that he had not been a sheriff's deputy in over a decade, had barely left his desk in three days. He was in his books. He had one whole pad that was dedicated to nothing but volumes and volumes on the history of extrasolar colonization, though that was hardly the limits of his own focus. He knew that people had taken his focus on colonization as the source of his passion, but in reality, he had made this his area of expertise because he was someone who needed to feel like he was doing something useful. It felt indulgent to him to retire to a life of study and research and not have it be relevant to the citizens of the Contiki. This ever-present sense of duty to the community was probably why his vocational tests had recommended he take up law enforcement in the first place. And he had felt that it was his duty to take up that recommendation. But this was what he wanted to do, and it was what he had always wanted to do. He wouldn't be so foolish as to say that the accident had been the best thing that ever happened to him. That seemed a bit cavalier about an incident that had been plenty scary and plenty painful. And besides, he had not disliked being a cop. But he was glad those days were behind him. He was like Participazio, the doge of Venice who laid down his mantle and retired to a monastery to spend the end of his life in study. Yes, that was very grandiose, but the Republican period of Venice was a special passion of Cole's. Regardless, here, with his books and his papers and his VR seminars, this is where he belonged. And not just the history of extrasolar expansion, not just the treachery of ancient Venice. No, he was fascinated by all of history. He was fascinated with how far people had come and with all of the steps along the way, with how knowledge and experience, breakthroughs and disasters, great leaps and terrifying setbacks had created the human civilization which was now stretching so far beyond its point of origin, somewhere in greener parts of a continent in the southern hemisphere of a planet he had never set foot on, but that was the source of everything that he and his people ever would be. It all started there, and every part of the journey from there to here stirred him deeply. Of course, nothing was stirring him deeply now, because he had slipped into the unconsciousness of someone slowly starving themselves to death, even though there are perfectly edible things just a short walk from his desk.
But he had, a few days ago, stopped being able to muster up the will to leave his desk and his books and his histories and to go to get that food, or sleep in his bed, or have bowel movements in an appropriate place. Fortunately, those had stopped as well, as of the past day or so. He had drifted into a twilight and then into a darkness. Now he was slumped on his desk, the deep breathing of unconsciousness, one of the few bodily functions still plowing ahead. And with that breathing, Oxalis continued to permeate and infiltrate every level of his being. That, however, was much less exciting than it had been in previous weeks, now that so many of his synapses had completely stopped firing. Before that had happened, Oxalis had learned much from Edward Cole and the rest of the citizens of the Contiki. Everything they were, and everything they knew, in fact. It was a process that none of them would have recognized, Edward least of all, because his passion was the deliberate pursuit of knowledge, the sitting down and doing the work of the academic and the armchair explorer. Oxalus would have what was useful from them that had invaded it, and it had taken it just as quickly as it had also isolated and begun to choke off the infestation they represented. It had chosen what to take into itself, what to make a part of itself. Now, it would recycle the rest. That part of the process took years, sometimes centuries, sometimes so long that the husk of a ship that had brought such an infestation might still be there, underground, being chewed and digested and harvested by the planet, even as all the things that had been the beings who'd manned that ship, all they'd known and valued and held dear, had been squirreled away into the most remote corners of the world consciousness, to be ignored until some use was found for them. Chapter 24 It was all for her. Maxine knew that above all else. When in doubt, well, don't. There were no doubts when you knew your role, and your role was to do. To do for her, and Maxine was doing for her. The result of what she was doing, plotting a trajectory to land on the planet they had been journeying toward, would benefit them all, of course, all 13,000 of their hive colony, and she herself would like, in the small, low, thrumming way that personal preferences expressed themselves, to see this planet and complete this journey which had taken them so long and so many hibernation cycles to make. She raised to her full height, her front legs lifting up a bit so that most of her body weight was on her hind legs. She'd always been a little short, and there had always been a bit, just a slight bit of self-consciousness about that fact, but whatever. She reached the sensor array above her anyway. That was what mattered. She was big enough to do the job that was hers to do. And she was not a breeding male. 
and would never have been in line to be a breeding male, so it wasn't like there was a lot of posturing and strutting in her future anyway. She, in fact, did not envy the breeding males. She knew other males in the mental labor strata, like Maxine herself, felt like they were caught in a kind of tepid middle ground. Not manual labor, not the teeming ones that were out there building things and swarming together and eating and resting and drinking and carousing together to wake up and do it all again, nor the breeding class, who most directly served the queen and her arch-queens. The ones who got to be where it all happened, as it were. Where all kinds of it happened, Maxine supposed. And probably, when her peers gave themselves over to envy, it was all of the its they were coveting. Both being near power and decision-making, and also all the breeding. Maxine felt her vestigial wings twitch at the just thinking the word. They wanted to have a place of prominence, to be seen and sensed in the background of important news parcels. Not Maxine. That was not for her. She turned the screen towards herself with her forelimbs and also reached out with her feelers. She would need to both feel and see this one. The color was placid enough, but... But reading the textures that arose and spiked and vibrated at the edges of the tactile interfaces of the array, she could also feel how narrow the math was here. The numbers were good, but there was not a lot of room for deviation. If she wasn't keeping near constant contact with this data stream, making constant tiny course corrections, blue would turn to violet, and then there'd be the black followed by a bright orange fireball as they all burned up in the atmosphere. And the last thing the Arch Queen of this mission would know was that someone in Maxine's department had screwed up. She'd have the briefest second to feel profound disappointment in Maxine. Not by name, but that did not matter. Just the thought of the Arch Queen's withering disapproval made Maxine's soft inner parts start to churn. Well, at least Maxine would be dead. But that was not going to happen because Maxine was good at her job, and that was all she wanted to be. For her. She was good at her job for her. For her queen. She'd actually seen the Arch Queen three times. Once up close, when she came to tour Maxine's department. She had just completed an egg-laying cycle, so she was considerably smaller than she might have been at full capacity. Maxine had been extra conscientious about not letting any sort of disappointment show in her display. And even so, the Arch Queen was still very impressive. All regal bearing and decisive posture and fertility displays... It was something. Maxine adjusted her display so that she could climb up to a second-tier position. The junior shift would be coming back from their meal, and while she might make full use of all of the workspaces in their absence, it was important to maintain the formal hierarchy when the subordinates were around. You didn't want to make them nervous. They got very inefficient when they spent all of their time trying to signal their submission to your authority. 
best to let them do for themselves and stay on the upper tiers. She settled in, ran a couple more simulations, and then she was sure. She charted the entry angle, attached the speed and attitude textures in a separate file, and sent the whole thing up to the command chamber. Eventually, it would reach the Arch Queen, and she would issue a command and probably a sent packet just to keep everyone on the same page, and then Maxine would have a couple dozen others of roughly her same status to help keep the calculations running all the way through to landing. How are you enjoying being an alien? Maxine turned and looked at Mr. Humphreys. He was standing next to her on second tier. Two worlds fought in her mind, and for a minute, she couldn't understand the word. Alien? Maxine looked down at herself, at a body that was soft and fragile between keratinous plates, supported by six long limbs that each seemed to have two sets of joints, the asymmetrical fingers, three on each hand. She was suddenly overwhelmed with sensation as the feelers that sprung from the place where her clavicles would have been on any other day began to play their way over whatever she had become. She was suddenly seized by a panicky horror. It swelled up so quickly that it made her head spin and her ears ring. Did she have ears? I hope you don't think me rude with the alien comment, but I don't think the name of this species would translate into anything you could say with, uh, well, vocal cords. Maxine was having a weird physical reaction to her situation that she did not understand. She had this desire to dance frantically in place, while at the same time she suddenly felt overfull, like someone was pumping air into her and she was expanding against her will. It was painful and powerful. Then she felt something open and release along her lower back and there was a rushing sense and then all of that air that was in her came bursting out in a gray cloud. Mr. Humphreys momentarily made a face of absolute revulsion before getting his composure back. He tried to cover as quickly as he could, but when he spoke, it was a bit choked. <coughs> totally normal physiological response to, to fear for this species. Uh, don't worry, nothing to be embarrassed about. Being embarrassed was the last thing on Maxine's mind at the moment. However, it does beg the question, what are you so afraid of? Maxine... Maxine... Maxine didn't know. Had she been afraid? But of what? The danger was over. They were planet-side. They had landed, and her extended team was being applauded for their good work. Her direct supervisor would definitely get elevated to breeding status. There was also some chatter that Maxine might be in line for the same. Maxine did not let herself think about it. Again, not what she was in this for. She was in this to explore, to see new worlds, to chart new planets and new ecosystems, and then to harvest all that she found here in the service of her Arch Queen. She did it for her. They would do to this new place what they had done to their own planet and every planet they had encountered since taking to the stars. 
they would turn it to the service of their queen through the personage of her retinue. All was to serve the queen and her court. Maxine could only barely remember her home planet after so many hibernation cycles, but she remembered that there was nothing left to do there. Every scrap of the place had been reaped and foraged to keep the wealth of their world flowing upward to the point where all of the natural riches had been essentially depleted. The soil had turned gray and dead and the mines had been tapped out. So they had turned their eyes to the stars and the queen had created a special line of daughters, the arch queens, who would journey to other worlds in her stead where they would set up outposts and supply chains to relay the wealth of the galaxy back to the court, where it belonged. This was Maxine's privilege, to serve her, the queen, in the great endeavor. It was a race against time. Their world was very near to death when Maxine's ship had started her journey. If they had been the only team, then home would be a lifeless husk right now. But there had been many ships sent out, and Maxine had to believe that some of them had been successful, that the queen was on her throne and her egg chambers were full, and that her culture still thrived on its home world. And if, shudder and try to look away, if that were not the case, then they would eventually find that out and they would adjust. They would begin again. Her arch would be elevated to prime queen in her own right. Even now, as she looked out on the rolling green hills of this planet and the distant forests beyond, Maxine's mind shifted from the math of entry angles to the math of resource harvesting and claiming the bounty of this world to her service. Their civilization would survive and resume here just as it had at home. Ah! Aha, Miss Maxine! There it is! There it is indeed! Mr. Humphreys was back. She turned and looked at him. He looked, and this is weird to say of a badger, especially when you feel certain that the eyes you are staring out of have never seen a badger before. He looked smug, like he was trying not to say, I told you so. He hadn't told her anything. Here, just as it had at home. That, that is always where the trouble starts. But there was no trouble here. They were with her. They were all with her. They must have been on the planet for weeks now. It had certainly been that long since that snide little conversation with Mr. Humphreys, and in that time, there had been a great deal of worry and anxiety. Something had been wrong here. Something on the surface of this planet was not right, and they all had sensed it. But then they retreated into the ship, and then they had felt safe for a time. Then they all realized the real danger was to the Arch Queen. They had gathered her into the center chamber of the ship. Then the working classes had formed a chain surrounding the ship. They would not move. 
Maxine was certain they were likely long since dead by now. It didn't matter. She was safe. They made sure of that. After a time, they had all driven by the two primal urges of their kind to protect the queen and to be near the queen, begun bundling their way into the chamber along with the court. What better way to protect her than by creating a literal wall of bodies that whatever horrors this planet harbored would have to cut through to get to her? The crush had been intense. There had been screaming at some point, though Maxine couldn't tell from where, and eventually it had stopped. When it stopped, a rumble of panic went through the crush of bodies, but the source of that panic was quickly lost. The room was so thick with the gray cloud of fear pheromones that everything felt muffled. The air in the room was getting hard to breathe, especially when the bodies pressing on top of you as everyone forced their way toward the Arch Queen were so unrelenting. There had been no scent packets, no word from the Arch Queen since, well, since the, since the screaming incident. Ooh, another, another surge in the crowd. Maxine felt something crack. It felt like it was something important. She no longer had the reserves to panic, or even to care. The crack became a sickening, giving sensation. Then something felt like it had collapsed. It was shaped wrong. The bodies moved tighter. She was leaking out. She was being smeared across the bodies below her and on top of her, and there was the most distant and muted sense of despair and loss. But what was there to lose when it was all for her and you had given it all for her? Maxine blinked her eyes. She was staring up at the ancient ship that was embedded among the rock and crystal of the cave. Her, her body felt like she'd been asleep for days. Her mind felt like it was someone else entirely. If she had had anything left to throw up, she might have. She remembered descending from the passage into the chamber. She remembered walking past the glowing mound in a state of near stupefied wonder. It was now behind her, between her and her path into the cave. She remembered drawing closer to the ship, just its enormous thrusters, what was left of them, and the bottom quadrant of its massive, its, its massive structure, its, its hive chamber. A swell of dislocation swept over her with the word, but she shook it off. Just that bit, that bottom bit of the ship showing from the cave wall, she had reached out to touch it. But before her fingers had made contact, the light show bouncing through all the crystals in this place began to swell and to swim and to vibrate before dimming and then blinking out. And then she was 
somewhere else. Then she had lived someone else's life. There was a wave of horror and longing that twisted her mind and guts simultaneously as the implications of this washed over her and she had to clutch the ground to hang on to the planet. She turned and got to her knees. Out of the top of her eyes, she saw Mr. Humphreys sitting on a rock, idly sketching things into the dirt with his walking stick. Without looking at her, he said, We need you to understand, Miss Maxine. He looked at her now, and his eyes were flat and matter-of-fact. We're going to need to make you understand. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.